This podcast was founded on the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our deepest respects to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners and elders past, present and emerging. We honour and celebrate the contributions of the oldest living civilization to art and storytelling. We all misbehave sometimes Want to change the world Indulge in some bad behaviour Hello and welcome to Bad Behaviour, a podcast for rebellious spirits who aren't afraid to tackle the taboo. My name is Nicola. And I'm Rosalind. And you have no idea how many tries it took me to get that one tagline correct. But we got there. (laughs) We got there in the end. It's a struggle sometimes. It really is. How are you doing, Rosalind? Are you thriving, surviving? I'm sort of somewhere between the two. That's wonderful to hear. Just for context for everyone, Rosalind has a birthday tomorrow, which is really exciting. Do you want to tell everyone how old you're turning? No, I don't. But thank you for giving me the platform to do so if I wanted to. I would just like to give you a choice. It's all about that choice. I'm just trying to decide when my age will stop. Not because I don't want to continue aging, more because I want an air of mystery. The other day I got carded for the first time in ages when I got a cider. It might have been because I was just in a good mood and I was like, can I have a cider? And they were like, she's young. She's innocent in the world. They're like, do you know what a cider is, honey? Are you sure you want one? (laughs) I just want to keep that youthful spirit going. Do you know what? You You absolutely are doing a great job of that. And that may sound sarcastic to people. It did to me. I'm being genuine. And also that's so rude. And the fact that I have to follow up any nice thing I say with a disclaimer that it's the truth. <laughs> it's it's We've created a real difficult work environment for me to be genuine. But um, what I was going to say is that you have exceptional skin. So Roz, like your face is just really beautiful. And I feel like the air of mystery vibe will forever be upheld. (laughs) Well, look, we'll see how long it lasts. And I'm determined to age like, like a Hollywood white man, you know, just like still taking everything for granted that I always had based on my looks and still getting the acclaim that I deserve. That's kind of my vibe as well. I wouldn't say I'm super intimidated by aging at all like it doesn't scare me all I want is a personal guarantee at the core of my system that when I'm like 45 years old I'll still be fucking tearing up the dance floor like that's all I need to know about aging oh absolutely I'm gonna be the 60 year old at the festival you know what I mean and We can make sure of that for each other too. Like we have that bit of accountability. Yeah, here's a bit of accountability for you now. I'm going to book a ticket to a festival now (laughs) for 50 years. (laughs) Sounds good. I'll be there. I'll be in the middle of the dance floor. My my go-to trick on any night out is that you tell a variety of people you whisper in their ear, you say, meet me in the middle of the dance floor. And then you give it a bit of time, you make your way to the centre of the dance floor and the night just takes a turn for the best. Roz has seen it happen, right? Like, you've witnessed it. 
Yeah, you've got to match it with a good song, though, because there's nothing like meeting in the middle of the dance floor to something, you know, that you're not vibing to. I will say this. You can make any song a good song if you're the circumstances are right it's it's about the feeling on the inside 100 percent. yeah because it doesn't matter if you look like the photos are amazing after the night what you want is that feeling of like no one can touch me right now like i am a goddess on the floor yeah exactly oh i miss going out with you a lot um that's hopefully that's in our future at some time well, come on over, honey. It's only 24 hours on a plane. <laughs> to be announced. I'll book you in for Thursday. <laughs> Bit too soon for me, babes, but <laughs> I will be there so that we can uh, reestablish our intense codependency relationship wherein every moment is spent attached to each other because, you know, life is about living it with friends, right? <laughs> <laughs> This has gotten bad and boring. (laughs) What we meant to say is that this episode is really good. That in conclusion, this episode is an absolute, speaking of bangers on the dance floor, this is a banger of an episode. So buckle in. It's not about aging. It's not. It's really not about... Anything that we've spoken about up until this moment will not be carried on in any way during the episode. So, other than our codependency, the yeah, the codependency is an ongoing theme for bad behavior. But anything else, just you'll have to tap us on the shoulder individually if you'd like to continue those conversations. Today we're talking about money. We're talking about financial literacy. Today we're going to be bringing you a conversation with. Christina from Verve and Verve is our beautiful sponsor for this season so we're so excited to be bringing you this incredible conversation. I never thought I would be the CEO of a superannuation fund, but here we are. So it was sort of an interesting journey into birth. I graduated uni, I took a job with a big four accounting firm. A few years into that, I just sort of like had one of these classic, like, what am I doing here moments? Like, what is this life? Decided that I needed to do something a bit more meaningful and was super lucky to take on a government funded position with what was called at the time Australian Youth Ambassadors for Development. It's called something else now, I think. But essentially a a spot funded by Australia's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade where you can go overseas and work in a low income country for a year and the government funds the position. So I was super lucky. I went to Kathmandu, Nepal for a year, worked for the United Nations, thought I would be heading back home after that. But started this 15-year career with what is the world's largest humanitarian organisation, the World Food Programme. And I guess through that time, just really woke up to climate change and what was happening. We were sort of supporting things on the end of that, people that have sort of suffered climate change impacts. But I was also sort of starting to become aware of all these cool projects that were happening globally around microfinance, supporting women's businesses and like the power of money to support that. And I guess Verve really came about a few things sort of intersected. So I came back to Australia one year and I just wanted to do climate change campaigning for a year. I decided I wanted to sort of spend my efforts 
kind of fix issues before they happened and came back and realized there was no superannuation fund that didn't invest in fossil fuels. And that was sort of what started me on my journey into superannuation and helped launch the first super fund that didn't invest in fossil fuels. And then that kind of took me on this journey where I started learning more about women's retirement inequality, found out that women are retiring with 37% less super than men, realized that a lot of the women, a lot of women, a lot of my peers, like didn't really know who to turn to for financial guidance. I guess it was just that time in my life where people were thinking about saving for houses and having babies and things like that. So a few things sort of started intersecting and I thought, hey, wouldn't it be amazing to have this women's super fund that not only didn't invest in nasties like fossil fuels, but also invested in some great projects for women like women's microfinance overseas. And at the same time, wouldn't it be awesome if that fund supported women to learn how to build their wealth? And that was kind of how the idea for Verve started. Um, and yeah, found some amazing co-founders and, and off we went. So let's start with the basics. Could you tell me what superannuation actually is? Great question. <laughs> so it's the system that we have in Australia for saving for retirement. So it's compulsory money that your employer has to put away for you. I think there's a couple of things about super that confuses people. So the first is that it's actually your money and it's your investment. So a lot of people somehow think it might be the government's controlling it or your employer is controlling it. But it's your money, it's your super fund, it's your investment. It's cool to think about it like that because for many of us, it's the first investing we do. So understanding and making conscious decisions around that is a great lesson. The other thing that kind of confuses people is it's also a tax system. So essentially at the heart of it, superannuation is a tax system because it's a way that the government taxes money differently for retirement. So it basically is a way that the government encourages us to save by having different tax arrangements around that money. Now that's important because to think about because it means that there's kind of benefits, potential benefits for saving more into our retirement savings as opposed to putting that money in other places. Lovely explanation. I feel like I needed that really basic, simple answer to what it actually is. I think many of us needed that a while ago. <laughs> so you mentioned there's a 35% super gap. That's huge. Yeah, it sort of depends on how you want to cut the numbers. It kind of goes between 35 and 45%. So that's a really significant gap between what women and men are entering retirement with. What do you say to people who think that the wage gap doesn't exist and we've achieved gender equality? A lot of people say to us like, oh, you know, surely these are just like historic issues of like older women and like everything's kind of fair now. Women graduates today are getting paid less than their male peers substantially. And then that impacts superannuation as well, obviously. Even in your first job as a graduate, the really sad part is that most young women aren't even aware of that. And then obviously that all kind of compounds. And I think where women really feel it is when we start having children. I hear so often that like women are struggling because they've had children or they've taken time out of the workforce. But when you look at other countries, like what's happening, for instance, in, in Europe, particularly Scandinavia, women aren't facing these challenges because having children is seen as something for the family and the family needs to be supported. Women are given good amounts of time off. They've paid a retirement benefit while they've got time off. More importantly, their partners, male or female, are given equal amounts of time off. So their partners are having more parenting involvement. It means that any employer, they're not worried about hiring a woman and thinking like, oh, is she going to go on maternity leave? Because if they hire a guy, there's the same risk. 
Australia is like, if you want to rank us globally, like for instance, there's only two countries in the whole OECD that have worse employment records for women once they've had children, getting them back into the workforce. So it's Ireland, which is like very conservative Catholic country, and then Turkey. So we're just, Australia, like our workplace laws and how they support women in the workforce are, are really, really non-favourable. Wow, I really didn't realise we rank so low. That is absolutely pathetic. I think as well, when you were talking about that, it made me think how the way I've heard it spoken about, it's almost as if it's a personal issue instead of a system inequity. So women are made to feel like they have to choose between having children and retiring with the same amount as what their male counterparts are making. And again, that goes back to a personal choice that you've made. So instead of coming at it from the lens of you should be supported by your workplace and by society to choose to have children, it's you made the decision to choose to have children. And so that's why we're unequal. You know, like most feminist issues, like it's not just women that it impacted like I had children really late so we've just had a baby my first child is she's four months and it's so funny because it's often people go through the realization of like when the personal becomes political but for me it was like these political issues I was always campaigning on suddenly became personal and I was like oh surely I can like tax deduct my childcare. like I'm going to go onto the ATO website and it's like I knew that I couldn't because I've been advocating for this but I was like you know I'm on there and then it's like shoes tax deductible child care not and then things like leave you know like the ideal situation for our family would have been that I have a business. I kind of have to get back into work pretty quickly, but my husband would have loved to have taken a year off. Like that was what he always wanted to do. But unfortunately, because we live in Australia and because these things don't exist, his employer didn't provide any parental leave for him. So he had to like take care as leave. That in itself is like really sad for a new dad not to be able to spend time with their child with like universal leave regardless of their income I think is just really sad for the guy or you know the woman if she's a, a non-primary caregiver and then you know there's also no government support I think you get two weeks if you're a man if you're below a certain income he was above the income but again like you know this is like caring for a child it should be universal you know if you think about incredible models that they have in a lot of Scandinavian countries where you know, not only does the woman get, you know, a year off, then the husband will get that time off. And then not only that, but like, if both of those caregivers take the full amount of time off, the overall couple then gets more time off. So it's like, you know, if the guy actually takes it up, like everybody gets more. It's like this real, like, let's encourage that. And then you look at like what happens in parenting in those countries, it's incredible. Like guys are suddenly like equal caregivers. Women don't have the burden on their shoulders and employers like, you know, know that it's the same deal whether they hire a man or a woman. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about what the gender pay gap is, Rose, because I think this conversation with Christina was really interesting to me because I'd confused a lot of these things in my head and I didn't have the understanding that I maybe thought I did when I went into those conversations. So I had to do a bit more research to figure out. So do you know what the gender pay gap is? 
Yeah, I'm aware of the term. I don't know that I've ever properly looked into... I'm intrigued by this opener, basically. (laughs) I'm wondering if I know what I know. (laughs) You've set me up here. I feel like it's a trick question. (laughs) It's not a trick question. It truly isn't. It's just I feel like we'd have very similar experiences with talking about all this economic stuff when it comes to feminism because for me – I feel like when I first started to learn about gender and women's studies, that was one of the first things that people would talk about is the gender pay gap or women earning less than men. You know, it absolutely is still a thing, but I suppose I didn't like actually consider its impact. And then my experience of that term as well was more to do with the fact that like so many people who don't believe it exists anymore. So basically the gender pay gap is the result of social and economic factors that combine to reduce a woman's earning capacity in their lifetime. And their equal pay and the gender pay gap are two different things. So equal pay is about two people in a workforce being paid differently for work that's kind of similar or the same, and that's illegal. And then the gender pay gap is more looking into the average earnings of women and how and the gap that exists still exists between men and women. And it's a massive gap. So all these stats that I have are recent and it's huge. It's fucking immense. So basically women are paid globally across the world. Women are paid approximately 20% less than men. So what that basically means is that for every dollar a male receives, women are receiving 80 cents. That ends up being quite a big chunk of money. So it's like 25k plus in a year. When you think about like all the factors that might be happening to kind of make the conditions possible for that pay gap to exist still in society, it's a pretty fucking damning picture like I was quite shocked when I looked into this and how big that gender pay gap still is I don't think it does surprise me I remember uh, reading about there was a protest in I think it was in Iceland where they were talking about the um, unequal pay and the gender pay gap and they figured out exactly how much it was they were being paid less and then they left at a certain time in the afternoon as their sort of strike and they were like, this is as much as we're paid, so we're leaving now. And it was something like three-something in the afternoon or something like that. And I thought that was a really um, interesting way to, to protest it. The things that make the gender pay gap still exist, conscious and unconscious bias and, like, discrimination in hiring, and you have the fact that women disproportionately still do majority of unpaid care and domestic work that's such a massive one like all that unpaid labor contributes so heavily to this gender pay gap which I think you know stuff like that was what was confusing me a bit in my head because I I suppose I was thinking of it not as like a gap but as that like equal pay thing, like someone going into work and getting paid at a different rate than their male colleagues. But it truly is like this big force in society that all women are reckoning against. And again, 
you know, we said this at the start of the episode and it's been a theme throughout my conversation with Christina, there is no data available about how the gender pay gap impacts women of colour, trans women, gender non-conforming people. The data is so lacking. Like I really tried hard to do some research about what the difference would be in terms of the gender pay gap with Aboriginal women and I found nothing, which is just so fucked, isn't it? Like it's so disappointing that we still don't have any of that accountability that can go up higher and like actually advocate for things to change. I remember the last census that I did, I was so angry about it because there was some new questions, but there was absolutely no questions about gender identity and sexuality on the census. I think that there should have been. The census is something that like they use that to allocate funding from the government to various things. And so things like if they don't give you an option to say that you're not religious, then it will put you in other and it will assume you are religious. And so it like it warps the amount of funding that goes to religious institutions. Or if it doesn't have anything on the census that says, oh, look, we've got like 30% of people who don't identify as a cis person. That's That might be high. I'm not sure. We don't have enough <laughs> data on it. They aren't going to take it seriously and allocate budget to looking into that, making sure that people are looked after. And so it's like, if you don't actually ask the question and get the data, there's absolutely no way to make a policy that can help this stuff because there's no way to know exactly what it is that's affecting it or how many people are affected even. And so it's infuriating. Sometimes when you talk about so many different women's issues like this, it comes down to, oh, but that's your personal experience. We're talking about your personal experience rather than an institutionalized or larger issue. And it's so hard to get out of that conversation. That's why I wanted to make the distinction between equal pay and the gender pay gap, because I think feminism, white feminism has fallen into this hole of talking about the gender pay gap and feminist economics as being it's like a personal problem and like you get yourself out of that with financial literacy and negotiation skills and go into the room and ask to be paid the same as a man and it's like that's not going to work. Talking to Christina a lot of hope there in terms of these female run and led financial organizations that are from the offset prioritizing inclusivity. These conversations are not something like a realized thing five years into them being an organization. Like the the starting point is that yes, the gender pay gap exists. It exists differently for different people and there's not enough data about how it impacts non-binary people or Aboriginal women or any other women. That gives me a bit of hope. Like talking to Christina has definitely given me hope, but still got that fire in my belly for sure. Now that I have my stats under my belt, let no man ever question me on the gender pay gap ever again because I am prepared. I challenge you. I challenge you <laughs> to question me. I got them stats, man. I've got them ready to go. So if you want a convo, come, yeah, meet me on my turf and we'll tussle and I'll win. Did that sound intimidating? <laughs> meet me in the middle of the dance floor to talk about the gender <laughs> pay gap.
I'd love to talk about financial literacy. Why do you think it's so important for women and non-binary people to learn about financial literacy? Yeah, so first of all, I'm going to bust this myth. And once you see this myth, you like see it everywhere. So the myth is that women are worse with money. Non-binary people seem to be left out of the headlines, so lucky them. But you on any given day will find in magazines in Australia, newspapers in Australia, articles that sort of imply that women aren't good at money so it's either cliches like you know the latest with sex in the city is out again and you've got these characters that are spending all their salaries on shoes and blowing their money like they can't budget you don't really see that in male characters you also see that in women's magazines so you often see things like articles tailored for women around you know how not to blow out the budget this christmas Again, you don't really get those articles in like magazines targeted at men. And then you just get like research, which kind of shows like, oh, women are less confident with money. Women don't know what they're doing with money. So even this research that's published, I love going back to source data. The title of the article has been like, why are women worse at managing money? I've gone back to their source research and read their report. And actually what it's shown is all these areas where like women might actually have more confidence than men. And then it's often just a couple of metrics where they're less confident and that's never reported like that. So if you actually look at the data, what it shows is that women are often more confident in managing budgets. Women in Australia are actually more likely to buy their first house younger at a younger age than men. So actually in all these areas of financial management, women, and I, I can't really talk to non-binary again, because we just don't have the data. You know, let's assume that there's similarities that, that there are these areas where women perform better. I'm sure there's areas where non-binary people perform better. Where women tend to have less confidence and tend to have less skills is actually around investing in this longer-term wealth building, which kind of makes sense if you think about it because we've kind of gone through this period of like women not being allowed in the economic system at all. So, you know, there's a women, many women alive today because it was only changing in the 60s that had to legally quit their jobs when they married. So we're kind of going through this generational change where women are now allowed to have jobs, they're allowed to earn income, they theoretically have the right to equal pay. So managing money, there's a lot of women of, old, of older generations who are used to managing day-to-day -day money. But we're sort of for the first time going through a period where women are starting to accumulate wealth. So women have been working for 30-something years and they're really accumulating wealth and investing. And so we're still in this phase, I think, where we're becoming more used to the idea that women have wealth and women have wealth to invest. And I think that we're just sort of seeing those changes as a society. So parents are like less likely to talk to their female children about investing compared to their male children. We still see a lot of these stereotypes. So that's why I think it's really important. And then on top of that, women also just face, as we talked about, these greater challenges. Like we have to negotiate harder to get the same pay. We have to structure our lives better in order to ensure that we have finances if we want to take career breaks. We're more likely to be in lower paid work. And so thinking about how we manage on those lower salaries, especially in today's society, how do you save for a house if you're a nurse or a teacher or in these lower paid jobs? So that's why I think it's really important that women have money conversations. And there's also just so much research that shows that men are far more likely to have conversations about money compared to women. It's something that is still a little bit taboo in, in today's society. 
And what are your key tips to starting to build that financial literacy? So I think the first one is probably just start wherever you're at. So if you have a part-time job or you're already earning income, like thinking about like budgeting and how you use that money is a great place to start and maybe even playing around with some hacks on that. So you can set up different bank account types, for instance, so that you've got money going away for a rainy day fund. If things go wrong, you've got money going into your holiday account, you've got money into your savings account, then you've got your spending account. So you know how much you want to be spending versus saving each month. So, you know, that's one kind of way that you can start to grow your awareness. Most of you have superannuation funds. So why not start learning about investing through superannuation as well? And then I think the next thing is like, setting goals. I think having goals is really inspiring. I think if you have a goal that you want to go on an overseas holiday or you have a goal that you want to buy a car or you have a goal even that you want to be able to work less so you can volunteer one day a week. If you have these goals, suddenly it motivates you to think about where your your money's going and what you're doing with it. I think if you just kind of like, oh yeah, I'm kind of getting this money in each week and it's kind of covering my bills and expenses. So like, I'm kind of okay less motivating to kind of set a plan and to help you achieve those things. I think that's such a nice way to approach financial literacy. You know, it's not a massive, intimidating thing you can start wherever you are at in that particular moment. And in terms of meeting people where they're at, I think financial literacy and the conversations around financial literacy generally exclude a lot of people from them and they're not accessible. So when you hear about financial literacy, it's from this place of a white privileged woman. It it very rarely takes anyone else into account. And so she has access to a stable income. She has access to generational wealth all these other things that we haven't really considered when we talk about finances. So I want to know how can we make financial literacy a more accessible conversation? If you can't answer that question, you can't really even talk to like a lot of women and even a lot of young people because, you know, like so many women that join Verb, they're like, oh, I'm so, they're like, I hated money. Like I thought it was this disgusting thing that I didn't want to even have around me not necessarily the money like to buy things, but just like this accumulation of capital, like it, it just disgusts me. Like, and I think a lot of women are not interested in pursuing money for the sake of money. And so they kind of just tune out in anything to do with money, which is like really sad. And so something we did really early on is we, and it used to actually be on our homepage of our website. I think it's not anymore, but we went back and looked at like, okay, what is the actual meaning of wealth? And the meaning of the word wealth is actually to have an abundance of what you value in your life. And that's really our approach to helping people think about their wealth building. We never start with a conversation of like, what age do you want to retire? Or how much money do you want to have in your bank? It's like, it's like, what do you actually want in life? And what does an abundance of what you value look like? And for one person, that's going to look really different to another. Like, somebody who really values the experience of overseas travel in a very deep way is going to require a different amount for their holiday budgets, for instance, than somebody that deeply values spending quality time with family or friends. Their holiday budgets could be almost zero. It could be time spent at home on leave with their family and friends. So really getting to the base of value. And then I think it's like, this question of like, what do you want your life to look like? What do you want it to look like this week? What do you want it to look like in five years, 10 years later on? And exciting people around that 
vision no matter where they are and then it's like okay how, and then money is just like okay how do you learn about money so you can structure everything so you can have that life so there's this movement you might have heard about it's called the fire movement it's like financial independence retire early and it captured the imagination of a lot of young people who were like I want to retire by the time I'm 50 or by the time I'm 45 or whatever it is and it was never about like how do I end up with 10 million dollars in the bank it's like how do I like save money and squirrel away money now and invest that money so that I can actually retire early and that's a value that's a mindset that's a that's a way of living and that's a really different living to somebody who is in the mindset of I really value driving around in my very expensive luxury cars and you know I need to have a really high performing job Christina has kind of delved into some very interesting financial literacy tips. And so I wanted to get your thoughts and opinions, Rose, on your own journey with financial literacy. Do you feel like you're financially literate? I was thinking about this while you were talking in the last 20 seconds or so. And I thought of something. So I think sometimes people think that being good at saving means that you have financial literacy. And I think that for a long time I fell into that trap because I've always been quite cautious with money. And so I'm really good at saving money. Like, but that's more about the fact that I'm good at sacrificing things to make sure I can save it. (laughs) If there's a goal in mind, like a holiday, whatever it is, that is a particular skill that I have that I'm very grateful for, but it's not actually financial literacy because If I was more financially literate, I'm sure that there are like I should budget and I wouldn't be feeling like the pain of giving up anything because my budget would make sense for my lifestyle and I would be saving based off that. And I have done that a few times, but certainly not to any great degree, you know, and then even thinking about using savings to invest and all this stuff. I really don't know anything about it. So I'm not sure if I can say I'm as financially literate as I always thought I was because I think it I just mean I'm good at saving money enough to cover my ass. Yeah, which is a part of the overall picture of financial literacy, but I think that's such an important distinction because I don't feel like I'm financially literate at all. I feel like in a similar way to what you said, like But I you can, are literate. I'm financially literate to the point where I can like I'm paying my rent on time and I can pay all my bills on time and I have like an idea of what my budget is. But I mean, just for context, this year I decided to do a no buy year. This would probably be a great time to talk about this. And I feel like this is an important part of financial literacy is like, it's what you were saying with saving. It's not completely like fucking yourself over. (laughs) in the process of being like, of saving for something, which is what I did. So I basically took away all of my life joy. And I said to myself, you cannot buy a thing, Nicola, like you are on lockdown. You're not allowed to spend any cash. Like I had a reasonable, you know, like I cut my coffees down to two coffees a week, which works really well for me. Now I look forward to them. So that's all cute. But there is a joy that comes from having a package in the mail 
that I haven't felt in a while and that it just kept building and building at the start of the year until there was just a manic period where I dropped quite a bit of cash and like had a shit ton of packages coming my way. I binged. Again, it's like that. I feel like I'm not financially literate enough to know where the line is with like what is comfortable for me to give up in order to save for what I want to be saving for or to meet my goals kind of, you know, leads to that discussion of what Christina was talking about in terms of what how we understand wealth like what it means to us like when we think of wealth typically we'd think of like lots of money like you have an excess of money and I really like the shift that she makes in terms of wealth as being something that's just an abundance of what you value in your life instead so not so much being monetary based but just having wealth in terms of how your values align with the life that you're able to lead. So I've noticed that Verve is positioned as disruptors, which I love the word disruption and I love talking about what disruption means in practice. And I'm really interested how you and the rest of the Verve team sustain that disruption because I know that when you're forging a new path and when you're disrupting, it can be really exhausting. So how do you take care of each other and yourselves to sustain that? For us, it it hasn't come in the way that we thought it might come. I think I thought at the beginning like, oh, you know, will people not join the fund because it's too out there or that's kind of what I was worried about. And then very quickly, like, that wasn't a problem. Like, people that got it joined, people that didn't, didn't. But then it was probably other things. Like, it was more like, you know, getting really unfair media reporting that's extremely biased, like, actually factually incorrect. Hold journalists to account for that. They don't even respond to your email. They know that you don't have millions of dollars to go and sue them and that you're not going to and they don't care. And I think it's, especially when we started as well, like, you're starting, it was a small business essentially when we first started and, other feminist organisation, like, yeah, we had like 10,000 ideas, but it was like, yeah, what can we do with our initial budget? What can we do? How can we do a few things? And, you know, getting really harsh criticism from people sometimes, like, why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you doing that? Why aren't you doing that? And it was like, at the beginning, it was like, we're like a four-person team. <laughs> like, we're already working all night till like 11 p.m. Like, give us a break. So I think it was kind of in these unexpected ways. And for us, like, I think twofold, like making certain that your life outside of work is like, you know, really well functioning. I think you can have some parts in your life being challenging, but you can't have all of them being challenging. So like just trying to stay on top of like health and exercise and like good relationships outside of work. So when at work things are taking off, you know, you can take it with a bit of a grain of salt. And then as a team, it was like, we really made a decision early on. Like we would always like back each other in terms of like knowing that even if one of us had got something wrong, that, that our intention had been right. So that was really important. And obviously you're in the feminist space, so you know exactly what we're talking about. Like you get criticised from this angle and then you get criticised from this angle and there's no right or wrong. Everyone's got different views. So, you know, even the by women for women thing is, you know, is an interesting one. Like you have like younger feminists being like, how are you like for women? That's like really exclusionary. And then you've got older feminists saying you know you need to create spaces like for women and like you need to be more proudly for women and it's like ah 
And so I think for us it was like, yeah, when we were getting pounded on, you know, a few times we took down ads from social media because people would call us out and would be like, you know what, actually, we agree with you, thank you. A few times we, were getting, we got called out and we were like, actually, we don't agree with you. We'll keep running the ad, keep doing the thing. And I think what was really important as a team was to say like, you know, if someone did get it wrong, like that's fine. Like at least you're trying and your intention's right and, yeah, let's learn from it and go on, but never sort of making individuals feel like they got things wrong. That's really lovely. Such a beautiful space to work from. And I just keep thinking throughout this conversation, intention. We keep coming back to intention and it seems like intention is key in Verve's work and sits behind everything that you're doing as a team. Intention related to gender, intention related to intersectionality, with the community you're building, how you're taking care of each other while you're building this community. And I think for me, that's really what's missing from conversations around finances and around financial literacy is the intention. So I just wanted to share that that had made me really happy in talking to you and was such a beautiful lesson to learn. I'm a much better feminist for this position because, you know, in the past I'd seen some women's businesses and I was like I was way more judgmental I was like how could you be doing this and how can you be like you know what a stupid idea and like that's not a feminist like way of dealing with it like and now I think it's like I'm like whoa like you know actually like doing anything is hard like starting a business starting an NGO like anyone who's got it wrong like they're probably their intention is still good and they're trying and that's something I really like really learnt from is like when we first launched we had all these like older feminists like women in their 60s 70s like we launched and we like we knew we wanted to do a million things and we were doing five things and there was always this guilt of like you know people going to say that we're legitimate we can't do all these things these older like women just coming in and being like we just want to support you they like moved their superannuation into our fund even though it was like very substantial amounts of money sometimes they were like how can we support you like you know let's introduce you to our organizations our members our friends like asking nothing in return and it was just because like they could see our intention they could see we were doing something really hard in a male-dominant space and they just wanted to support us and I was like damn like that's the kind of feminist I want to align myself with like I want to give people a break support intention and goodwill and be part of that Thank you so much to the beautiful Christina and the Verve team. I thought it would be really cute for to ask you, Roz, about you, me and Chedge as a little podcasting team. What do you think some things that we do together or individually to sustain our disruption? Because I like to think that we're disruptors. Do you agree? Yeah, I think so. I think that's part of what motivates us to make the pod. It's like that serenity prayer, isn't it? What is that again? Oh, what is it? You say it all the time. Dear Lord, please give me the... Okay. Dear Lord, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. It's sort of like, you know, accept what you can't change and change what you can't accept that relevant to disruption I feel like it is if you're choosing to change something that you don't accept that is disruption the piece that I'm interested in though with that is like how you sustain it because it is a lot of work to sustain that disruption 
Well, I think it's sort of like, you know, that thing where people say take care of yourself before you take care of others because then you'll be able to take care of others. I feel like it's sort of like that, right? Like if you start the disruption with yourself and for yourself, you can push that outwards when you have that energy and that drive. So it's sort of like if you start on a smaller level and you go, how can I disrupt so that that my thought processes are, you know, taking account of privilege or where I'm at or like, you know, looking after myself and all of this stuff and changing the way that I view myself in society or I view others in society, like working on that, then you'll find, I think, that like disruption in the outside world is easier because you've already done the work. And so it's just sort of extending that outwards when you have the energy to and bringing it back when you don't. You've got to disrupt your own mind to disrupt the rest of the world. So unlearning is a form of disruption, isn't it? If you look at it through that lens. When we think of disruption as well, we think of it as like really loud and aggressive and like taking up space. The person who's silently supportive of their friend who's disrupting or the person who's like, I'll drive you to the gig friend, you know, like whatever it is, that person's really important. Or the person who just consistently passes the mic because it's not their experience to speak on. I think all of that is disruption. And it's like an ongoing process. I I don't always feel like I'm doing it right. And I get super self-conscious and I'm like, am I a good person? Blah, 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 blah. Gets so into my head. But I think when you go back to those values of what wealth is to us and like, as a little team and like in order to do our best work as a team we need to be taking care of ourselves which seems really basic when you say it but it's nice to reflect on because it just like happens automatically for us like I don't think we take time a lot to like reflect on how we make this podcast happen you know like how we care for each other in the process of it I think that's actually kind of a beautiful idea it is isn't it I really care for you quite deeply. Thanks. Mate, you've got to say it back or else (laughs) I take it back. Well, you can't just take it back. That's disruptive in the wrong ways. That was me (laughs) not decentering myself. My brain was like, you were vulnerable. It wasn't reciprocated. Pretend like it didn't happen and run away. (laughs) Like it's like the classic thing of like when, you know, a boy gets rejected and he's like oh you're fucking ugly anyway that's literally what my brain just did to you and I'm so sorry (laughs) well I'm glad that we had that moment so we could analyze that uh I hope that you got a lot out of it yeah well look we're always here to model behavior like this is this is (laughs) disruption the art and practice of disruption in process you know like I am modeling the behavior of what not to do (laughs) always happy to put myself (laughs) forward and and now I'm going to model the behavior of what to do which is express gratitude thank you to Christina for being a goddess and a bad bitch thank you to Nemchedja let's finish with a fucking like adoration of Nemchedja Cheji is so hot she is so smart she Every room she enters, people are in awe. It is just incredible. She's funny. Oh, she's so funny. She's loud. She's unapologetic unless she needs to be apologetic, in which case she's great at it. She's a wonderful person. She's really good at listening. She's so good at listening and always got great insights. 
And you know what she does as well that I really love is she will remember that you've said something and then she'll like follow up with you about it or she'll check in or Mm -hmm. she'll like remember that you liked a certain article or book and then she'll send you the link to it. Like it's just she'll laugh at all the right places in your story so that you feel like the funniest person on the planet. And she'll also laugh at all the wrong places in the story. So you feel like she's hysterical as well. Like so fun. Actually, you know what? I would like to respectfully to all of our listeners offer you a one-time only ticket to the Nemchecha fan club. Um, We're starting it now. That's what bad behavior really is. (laughs) That's what disruption is. It's about loving our editor a bit too intensely. She will feel, I guarantee you, Chedji is listening to this and being like, shut the fuck up. Like, you annoying bitches. Which is why it's so fun. Chedji... I know you're listening to this because you have to listen to every single minute, second and hour that we place before your ears. We love you a lot, honey. We love you so much. And just like that, we've turned our public podcast into a personal soapbox for our own needs. (laughs) So maybe we'll call it a day there. Bad Behaviour is a proud podcast with Diamantina Media. This episode's executive producer was Nicola Kranich, hosted by Rosalind Ankatel and Nicola Kranich, editing and sound design by Namcheja Magembe, produced by Rosalind Ankatel, Nicola Kranich and Namcheja Magembe. Our logo was designed by Bonnie Eichelberger. We all misbehave sometimes, want to change the world, indulge in some bad behavior.